As the children make their way to CFC Kids, I would invite you to pray with me one more time and ask the Lord to be with us as we enter into a time looking into His Word together. So in just a few seconds, it'll be Bibles out and nose in the text, asking the Lord to teach us. Father, we pray that you would do that this morning, that wherever we are right now in our headspace and our spirits, our hearts, Lord, we we pray that you would settle us down for a second and allow us to focus on you and learn from what you have to say. I pray that you would get me out of the way and um, that I wouldn't be a cause for distraction and misunderstanding. Give me grace, Lord, in this moment to be clear and that we would be able to see what you're teaching us in this passage so we can learn it and live it for the glory of your name in Christ, and it's in his name we pray it. Amen. Amen. Much of life, especially the Christian life, if you think about it, uh, is about obedience. And um, if we're we're not careful, we can emphasize grace and mercy to the tune of distorting it and then erasing the need for obedience. But when you read the Bible from cover to cover, it's about obedience, obedience, obedience. So Revelation, remember we were in that series? When things get difficult, are you going to remain faithful? Are you going to still obey Christ, follow Christ? In the very beginning, Genesis, the first test was obedience. You can eat any fruit from any tree. You just can't eat fruit from this one tree, one rule, and man couldn't keep it. And then in between Genesis and Revelation is a long story of how are we going to obey? What does it take to obey? But God never stops caring about obedience. Now, most of us are are okay with obedience and rules when it's stuff that makes sense, when it's the obvious stuff. Don't murder anybody. Most of us probably, I'm, I'm hoping that most of you are good with that. Uh, don't kill anybody. But as we go lower down the rung in our minds in terms of the finer details of what God wants, we have a harder time with those things. And sometimes we're put in situations where the pressure is really on to not just obey it in theory, but to obey it in reality when it's going to hurt to obey it or when there's pressure pulling you the other way. And in those situations, we disobey, not because we want to disobey, but normally because when we think about that particular rule, as opposed to don't murder people, we think, what's the big deal? So in other words, what I'm saying is, one of the reasons why we don't have an issue with don't kill people, don't murder people, is because we're like, we don't typically ask, what's the big deal? He cut me off in traffic, saw him at the gas station, I pulled out a knife, you know? What's the big we're not we don't rationalize the big ones like that it's the small ones or seemingly small to us okay and so this is this is how we're we're like throughout life it's the big rules that your parents had you understand those it was the small ones that didn't quite make sense to you some of them seemed arbitrary to you why'd you make the curfew that time and not this time why that hour not that hour does something magically happen at this other hour why'd you make it that hour 
And those are the ones we tend to pick at. Those are the ones that tend to bother us. And those are the ones that we tend to disobey. Because in our minds, we're asking the question, what's the big deal? And that's a dangerous question. We start thinking, hmm, what's the big deal really? It's pretty much over. (laughs) We're going to learn that not from Genesis, but from 1 Samuel chapter 13. Here are 15 verses that for many people are quite frustrating because I'm going to just give you the spoiler, okay? uh, Saul has just been made king, and then he disobeys, but when you look at the text, like, he didn't kill anybody. He didn't cheat on his wife. He didn't just start slapping people around. He actually does something good that in another context is a good thing to do. He just does it in the wrong time, and he's not the right person to do it, but it's not an evil thing that he did, you understand. It's just out of context. And he loses his kingdom. God's like, You're, no, one, no one's going to sit on your throne after you. I'm going to choose another line. So seemingly small disobedience, and you're reading it like, huh, what's the big deal there? And then when you see the consequence, you're like, well, somebody up there thought that was a big deal. And that's where he went wrong. What's the big deal? And then he lost it. So I, I feel for, if, uh, uh, probably as you do, I feel for Saul when I read this and when I think to myself, yeah, I mean, I, we, don't we all do that? We disobey sometimes in the smaller things that we didn't realize were such big deals. And then God's up there going, just looking at the chance to go, ha, you messed up. You didn't read the fine print. It's like Willy Wonka at the end. You didn't, you didn't read that. You lose. And that's our vision of God sometimes. He's just like waiting. He's just waiting for us to trip, to go, see? And so he picks on the finest thing to just mess, mess you up. I hope that when we're done with this, you'll see that's not God's attitude. And our hearts are the ones that are messed up. Let's do this. Let's read the first 15 verses. We're, that's all we're going to do today is the first 15 verses of chapter 13. And then we'll back up and make some observations so we can learn the lesson that we're supposed to learn here. 1 Samuel 13, 1 through 15. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gebeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, And 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Bethavan. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. And Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. 
So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They then went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. So, you read that story, if you were tracking with it, Saul's waiting, waiting, waiting. Samuel didn't show up. He's like, ah, I'll do it. He offers the sacrifice. Samuel shows up right then, perfect timing, and tells him, what have you done? You've just lost your kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean Saul gets immediately removed from the throne. It means his kingdom doesn't continue through his kids. And so he's going to sort of run out his tenure, and then after him, it's going to be somebody else, and their line is going to be the one that sits on the throne forever. And the first thing we notice in this story is that the problem is not just what Saul did. The problem is Saul's attitude. This is why God says, I'm going to find someone after my own heart. You're not after my heart, and that's why you did that. It's what's behind the act. Okay, It's the attitude underneath what Saul did that we first take notice of in the first four verses because the episode begins by Saul seemingly taking credit for Jonathan's victory. I don't know if you noticed that, but Saul is reigning. He chooses 3,000 men. He gives himself 2,000 of the men and gives Jonathan, his eldest son, we find out later. It doesn't really introduce Jonathan here, but we know that's his son. He gives his son 1,000 men, so half the troops that Saul allotted for himself. And then who has the victory? Jonathan has the victory. And then once Jonathan has the victory... What does the king announce? Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land. Let the Hebrews hear. Hear what? It tells us. Verse 4. All Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. So this gets the people excited. And it looks a little bit like someone's taking the credit. Now you could say Saul is in charge of Jonathan. And so since Saul is the one that assigned Jonathan his assignment, he gets the credit, but that's not what it sounds like. And, and then remember, we're not jumping into this out of nowhere. Some of you who are here for the first time, you are. But we've been in 1 Samuel tracking with Saul, and that's just the kind of guy he is. He's not a great guy. <laughs> he is the kind of guy that would be like, yeah, I did that. And fast forward, some of you know this story already. When David starts having victories, and people start singing songs about how great David is, and they compare him to Saul. Saul doesn't take that all that well, does he? And so we're already seeing the narratives kind of shaping Saul's not, he's just not in a great place. He's not really there. And it's sort of hinting at it that he just has this sort of inability to 
obey. The problem is rooted not just in one act of disobedience, but in the fact that Saul is not in the right place spiritually. The text, if the spirit is not actively rushing upon him, he doesn't do good things. And so we need to be mindful of that. Obedience and disobedience is never just about act or inaction. But it also, those actions or inactions come from some place. And the reason why you did it is because you're in, a, you're in a place where you're not, you don't want to obey. And that's kind of the bigger issue. It's the underlying issue. And then as you move forward in, in the narrative, we see that when you're in that place, you're in a weak place. You're not after God's heart. You're not looking for obedience. You're ready to kind of make an excuse. You're, you're looking for an out when it's presented to you. You're maybe not going out and looking for disobedience, but when disobedience finds you, it finds a weak person who's not very patient because a person who's already weak cannot be patient and obedience often requires patience. The payoff isn't right in front of you and so you grow impatient. Ah, what's the big deal? See, that, that's when that sneaks in. You don't see the payoff right away. It's you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. God told you to do this thing and you're waiting, you're waiting and the payoff isn't there. You see other people not disobeying and it seems like they're getting payoff. That's when the pressure hits, and that's what happened to Saul. Look at verses 5 through 7. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Uh Uh-oh, he only gathered 3,000 people. Little outnumbered, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops. This This is not good. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. In verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and cisterns. He's losing all his guys. They're hiding. They're running. He knows a little bit something about hiding. They're not hiding behind baggage. They're, they're jumping in wells. They're hiding in crevices. Anything they can find, they're, they're hiding, and they're running from him. And verse 7 says, some of them ran across the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They just hightailed it out of there. They're not hiding. They're running. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people that were still with him, <laughs> the leftovers that didn't run away yet, uh, they followed him trembling. Okay, so they are scared. They are fearful. They are about to get destroyed. Okay, they see the chariots. They, apparently, they took account. You know, they're like, oh, one, two, three, four, five, multiply that. looks like, okay. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> we're, we're hugely, grossly outnumbered here, and Saul's losing all his people. Now, if he keeps losing people, it's going to be him. It's going to be one against thousands. He's just going to be by himself. So he's getting nervous. He's getting nervous. He sees the slippage, and that's creating pressure. We feel that, right? Wouldn't you? <laughs> You're, it's already 3,000 against thousands and thousands and thousands. That's already bad enough. But as your 3,000 turns into just a few dudes, that creates pressure for you uh, that will tempt you to get something going here because the prophet's not showing up to do the sacrifice, which is God's blessing. If you do the sacrifice, you have my blessing. And if you have my blessing, I have your back. And then you can, you'll win the battle, not on the, the force of your numbers, but because Yahweh is with you, but he knows Yahweh's not with me if I don't do the sacrifice. So that's why he's waiting. He's waiting for the prophet to come and do the sacrifice so we can go beat these guys. But it's not happening 
and he's losing his guys. Day six, day seven, dude's not showing up. And then he does the sacrifice himself. Now, the commandment that he's breaking was back in chapter 10, verse 8. You can go there if you want to. But this is where uh, he was given this command to go down. uh, Samuel telling Saul, go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Okay, so wait seven days. I'm going to come to you. And then when I come to you, then I'm going to tell you what to do. Here's the plan. Here's the battle plan. Here's what you're going to do about the Philistines. Until then, no need to draw up plans. No need to pull out the the whiteboards and figure out, you know, your plan of attack. You don't need a plan of attack. Just sit there and wait. Don't figure out the strategy. Don't figure out the troops. You don't even have to count how many there are. Just sit there and literally wait. And then I'll show up, do what needs to be done so that God's on your side. And then I'll tell you what to do at that time. But what do I do until then? Sit there and wait. That's what you do till then. It was a clear command, 10, 8. And now he tried waiting one day, two days, three days. Good for him. Five days. Wow, stellar job. Six days, seven days. And now he's like, I waited. But he's not just waiting. He's waiting under pressure, which the text emphasizes to us when verse 6, they saw that they were in trouble. The people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves. The people were all trembling. See, the text is showing you the, the, the pressure that Saul was under while he's waiting. So it's bad enough that he was waiting. Cause I, if you're like me, I just hate waiting for anything. I'm kind of just naturally impatient. On top of that, the pressure of losing all your people All the troops are scared. They're probably like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do, Saul? Saul, we're losing more people. Another 12 guys disappeared. Another 10 guys jumped into a cistern. What are we going to do? Harassing him, I'm sure. Obedience isn't hard when there's no real pressure to do it. Obedience is hard when there's pressure. But that doesn't make it not a matter of obedience. It's still a matter of obedience, even if there's pressure. If you're told not to eat, and wait for everyone to get to the table. That's not a big deal if the food mom cooked is not one of your favorites and you just snuck a few snacks an hour ago. That's not that big of a deal. But you're starving and she made your favorite meal, but the guest hasn't shown up yet. You start getting ticked at those guests. (sighs) That's the pressure. Now multiply that, extrapolate to real life situations where it's not about food. It's kind of a light illustration, but God expressly commanding something and everything around you is pointing in the opposite direction. And the only thing pointing in the right direction is the one thing that God said don't do. That's it. No evidence, no proof, nothing. All the proof that your eyes see is the opposite. When people do that, they tend to be, maybe they're, you know, not doing so well, and I see other people not doing it, and they seem to be doing well, that kind of pressure will cause us to crack and disobey. But what this text is teaching us is that when we crack under pressure, even if it's tremendous pressure, legitimate pressure, disobedience to God is still disobedience to God, and none of our excuses will ever really make sense after the fact. All those excuses that enter your mind and heart in the moment where you're like, let me just bite that fruit real quick. What is the big deal? Everyone else is biting the fruit. 
I don't understand what's bad about fruit. I thought fruit was healthy. Later, when you're embroiled in the consequences, you'll look back and see that none of those excuses made any sense. This is what we see with Saul. He's got all this pressure, and in his mind, all the pressure gives him all the excuse he needs to break protocol and do what he wants to do anyway. And that's in verses 8 to 15. He waited the seven days. There's the first. I waited seven days. Seven whole days. The day eight happened yet? He waited the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. See, (laughs) literally if he waited a few more minutes. As soon as he had finished the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Hey, what's up? I just find that humorous. Get, go out to greet him. And Samuel's just like, what have you done? What, what are you doing? It's eerily similar to the garden scene in Genesis. When Adam was put in charge, he was given one command. He broke it. Then, Adam, uh, then God came for their walk. And he's like, where, where are you? And Adam and Eve were hiding. What have you done? And then what did Adam do? You remember? Excuses. What did Eve say? Excuses. Verse 11, what have you done? And here's Saul with the excuses. Because we haven't really matured much from the garden. Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come with the days, within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, see how it's everybody else? All these people were scattering. You were late. The Philistines are gathering. It was out of my hands. I said, verse 12, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. This is called spiritualizing your disobedience. I have to seek the favor of the Lord. I need the Lord on my side. So you did that by disobeying him. Hmm. I I mean, I think it's comical. Verse 12, so I forced myself. It was hard to disobey, trust me. I thought about it. But I, I convinced myself, I had to. I compelled myself, you can, the Hebrew can translate, I, I compelled myself to do it, and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, not, well, I, I guess that makes sense. I mean, I try to get here on time, and wow, I'm looking at the horizon. That is a lot of Philistines. So, I mean, I get it. You're a fool. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment, the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Do you see how Saul, uh, Samuel just simplifies what Saul was overcomplicating? The Philistines, the troops abandoning me, the battle lines, the time, day eight was about to begin. I know I need the Lord's favor, like all this stuff. Like, stop thinking, dude. Just stop thinking for a minute. You had one command. Wait, then I'll come and give the sacrifice, and then I'll tell you what to do. That's it. 
And so all of his excuses, all of his reasoning, all of his logic, all of his uh, sidebars of there was this and there was that, it's like Samuel just brushes all that to the side and he's like, he's not, he's not discounting that they're fact. He, it, he doesn't tell them, there are no Philistines. What are you talking about? All your people are here. Nobody's hiding in cisterns. What are you talking about? There's no battle. No, he, that, all that's granted, but none of it is an excuse. He cuts right to the chase. There was a command, and you've done foolishly because you did not keep the command with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Huge consequence. Why? Because you remember the chapter we just came out of, God is telling them this is only going to work if you and the king obey. If you're in disobedience, I can't, this, this covenant thing is not going to work. And immediately we see disobedience. So his kingdom's not going to continue. The Lord has now sought a man after his own heart, which is an indictment to him, basically saying, you're not after my heart. That's why this is a problem. And the Lord has commanded him, we're going to see that's going to be David, to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose, went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up from the, after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Low number. I mean, that's a low number compared to what they're about to engage with. But the author is basically saying, that doesn't matter. How many guys did Gideon have? 300? But God whittled them down because God wanted to show off. It doesn't matter how many troops you have. That's what I'm saying. It, if, you, if you get a bird's eye view and you look at things theologically, if you could detach yourself from the moment, you go, God's bigger than that. That's dumb if I cave. God's bigger than that. In this situation, can God have 600 people win against tens of thousands? Yeah. Has he done it in the past? Yeah. But in the moment, we tend to lose sight of those things. So Saul's full of his excuses. Samuel doesn't hear any of these excuses he points to the one problem, and that is that he had one simple command to follow. He did not follow that command. Now his kingdom is lost. One of the saddest things in terms of this consequence is not that Saul lost the kingdom, but that Jonathan lost the kingdom. And Jonathan does nothing wrong in the entire series, ever. That doesn't mean he was a sinless man, but, but the series right, in, this, in Scripture continues to show Jonathan as a worthy uh, man of good repute who is after God's heart. He's always operating in faith. And something his dad did caused him to lose the kingdom. So you talk about big consequences. There are consequences that you're not even thinking about in the moment. Saul's not thinking about his son, but his son loses too. So even though Saul has excuses that in the moment we might be able to sympathize with, we probably need to realize that we don't sympathize enough with Samuel here, who's representing God. We don't sympathize enough with God's side of things. So here's a few things just to keep in mind to make us see, hmm, maybe this actually was a big deal. By way of a few questions, okay? First, was God clear on his command? I mean, if, if your kids disobey you and they were like, but you said this, and you realize, oh yeah, that was confusing. Don't you kind of walk back the consequence? I hope you do. Walk back the consequence a little bit. You weren't clear. The kid tried to obey. You were confusing. 
You said this, then you said that, and they didn't know which, and then they were confused. But is that what happened here? Was the command clear? He had it in his little index card. He pulled out. He's like, seven days. Well, he had it. So God was clear on his command. It was a, it was a simple command. It wasn't like a five-page book, and you had, he had to exegete the Hebrew. It was a simple command. Second, did God say wait forever? Wait seven days, man. Wait seven days. And he's looking at the clock, and I don't think it's clear in the text whether just as soon as day seven hit and the first hour of day eight was going to begin, that's when he did it, or as the sun was going down, but the, the evening of day seven was still available. We're not sure, but you just see his impatience. He's watching the clock, and then as soon as the sundial hits where he's looking, and then he does it. But God wasn't asking him to wait forever. It's not like he didn't give him a timeline. Just sit there and wait forever while they're getting speared to death. Not one person had been killed yet. Not one arrow had been fired yet. Next question. Has God ever not shown up in the past in the history of Israel? Has he ever let them just get defeated? No. This is why the king was supposed to study the Pentateuch, study the, the prior history of Israel that God always saw them through. And when they disobeyed, that's when things messed up. That's when messed up things happened. When they obeyed, God had their back. That was always the history. He didn't reflect on that. He just lived in the moment and he was scared. So it's not an unreasonable ask. God is not asking something unreasonable. It's not crazy. He's not maniacally trying to make up crazy rules and just wait for us to mess up. That's just not how he operates. He's clear. And he always has our back when we obey. And then, what did Samuel do? He did what the priest is supposed to do. So this is hard for us to imagine, but as a light example, imagine you're waiting for your parents, you're a kid, and you're waiting for your parents to sign something, but they're not showing up, they're late, and so you forge their signature. Okay? What's the big deal? Probably they were going to give you permission to go on that trip anyway, or whatever it is. But you just took the prerogative of your parent and made it yours. And now you're representing your parents for you and not the other way around. Okay. Now, extrapolate that up to God and temple and sacrifice. The holy things that you're not supposed to touch. If you touch them, you die. Right. This is, this is very clear in the Old Testament. The priestly function is not to be handled by anybody else. You always need a priest to go between you and God because God is too much for us to handle. We need the go-between. And Saul here is like, I'll be the go-between. I'll do it myself. Do what yourself? Mediate between your people and God as a non-priest? Only a priest can do that. And so he's, he's making up his own rules in an area that's sacred. And, death and life and death have always been attached to those sacred priestly things. And he's just like, well, I guess I got to win this battle somehow. And he does it himself. The stakes are way higher than a parent's signature on a field trip form. And then finally, God already demonstrated to them that he's the one to fear, not the Philistines. Remember when he was making it clear to them, the only way this is going to work is obedience. And they're like, yeah, yeah, no, definitely obedience. And then he sends a thunderstorm and they're like, whoa, hey, tell God to cut that out, please. We're going to die. And then Samuel's like, well, we're just being clear that God is real serious if you obey. But if you obey, everything's going to work out. But just remember to obey. Like, we will obey. We will do it. Yes, we're going to do it. 
bang, disobedience right away by the king himself. So God's not being unreasonable. He didn't set them up to fail. He set them up to obey, and they didn't do it anyway. So actually, Saul is the one that's being illogical. Saul is the one that's being unreasonable, not God. And like I said, if we are pressed in a moment, we need to kind of try to take a step back and see the bigger picture so that we're not swallowed up in the details of that moment and given to making a bunch of excuses. So one of the ways to do that, one of the practical ways to do that, to not get caught up in the moment, to take a breath, take a step back and see the bigger God picture of things is to uh, be a student of history especially as laid out in the Bible. When you're reading through, you know, we hit a new year. Maybe some of you have resurrected your plan to read through the Bible in a year. And you kind of got through Genesis. Exodus was doable. Some of you of a certain age just have Charlton Heston in your mind. Helps you get through visualizing something. Maybe Prince of Egypt, the the cartoon, there's movies. Then you get to numbers. You're like, oh, and Deuteronomy, like, oh, Leviticus. Oh, killer. Try to track with the big swooping arcs of the narrative, which is God continuing to rescue his people over and over. He rescues. He's a rescuing God. He rescues. What about this danger? What about these villains? What about that uh, danger? And God, nothing is a match for God. Egypt's gods can't match God. Israel's own disobediences can't match God. Rebels within the camp can't match God. When they sneakily grab stuff and sneak it in the tent and hide it, God sees it. God is never outmatched by anybody, ever. That's the history of Israel. And if he would cling to that history, he'd obey in the moment. And if we cling to that larger history, we see, let me just not get wrapped up in this moment and see the larger thing. And even if I can't see what God is going to do in the future, I can see how he's acted in the past, and I'm banking on him being the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And that can get us through difficult moment, moments. Read biographies. I don't do this anywhere nearly as much as I should, but read biographies of men and women of the faith. Sometimes we really love biographies of the war hero and the, the inventor and the first woman to do this and the first young person to do that. And those are great. But when you read biographies of men and women of the faith, you see the things they went through that make our lives look pretty cakewalkish. And that's encouraging because God got that person through. I think God could probably get me through this if I obey. And then look at your own history. Even if you don't keep journals or anything, just take a moment sometimes and think back in your life. What were those times where I felt really pressed, but God came through anyway? And I look back and go, you know what? In the moment, I thought that was a big deal. And I'm looking back, I'm really glad that God kept me from those things because it was a big deal. Look back on the history of your own life and realize that God doesn't fail you with regard to his promises. And that's the the other thing I want to remind you of is be clear on what God's promises actually are. You know, a lot of us are like, well, God promises for everything to go smoothly for me. I thought pastor said, if you obey, everything is going to go perfectly smooth. I didn't say that. Hit rewind. Did not say that. God will bless you. God will go ahead of you. God will work things together for good, even those difficult things. 
But if we're not living lives of obedience and we're not in Christ, we don't have that promise that he's going to work everything together for good because it's for those who are after God's own heart, or as Paul put it, for those who love him. So it's not random promises. It's not the promise that you're going to have the career you want, the promise that you're going to have the girl you want, the promise that you're going to drive the car you want. It's promises that God will get you through this life if you listen to what he tells you, if you allow his word to light your path. And if you allow yourself to divest your heart of all the made-up excuses that would prompt us to disobey. So here's the point, and then I'll just leave you with a few things that I think we need to consider to really drive this home. But I think what this passage is teaching us is that we will more clearly see God's care for us in this life if we exhibit patient obedience. If we exhibit patient obedience we'll more clearly see God's shepherding care toward us in this life. I mean, we're not up against Philistines, but we're up against all the things that would, anything that would prompt us to disobey God, whether it be persecution or um, loneliness or uh, you feel like, you know, spiritual FOMO, all your friends are enjoying the world. How come you can't have any of the fun? Because they're diving headlong into consequences and their folly, and you're not. Even though in this exact moment it doesn't look like that, it is that. If we are patient and we ride it out, just obey and not overcomplicate things and understand obedience as really a matter of simplicity. Did God say to do that or not? Yes, he did. Then do it. What about this or that? Don't care. Stop caring about that. But if I do that, then if I do that on Monday, then Tuesday is going to look like this. How about let God take care of Tuesday and you do what you're supposed to do on Monday? Let's simplify things a little bit. Get clear on what God says do and don't do. And let's just try that. Let's try that. And then there might be a little less scarring around trying to plug holes in the boat that we keep shooting into it with all of our bad decisions. If we would just slow down and be patient and obey. Obey what? Glad you ask. It's called Bible study. <laughs> That's what we're doing here. We open the text like, what does he say? Not what do I want it to say. You know, I'm not flipping through the Bible like, let me just, I need something encouraging today. Give me something encouraging. How about just read through the Bible and let it give you what it's designed to give you instead of you predetermining what you think is encouraging and trying to go to the same three Bible verses that you always go to all the time and ignore books like Numbers or Joel, Right? Let God tell you what he wants. And if you're finding it difficult, let's learn together how to interpret what the Bible is saying and what the Bible means. And if you're wondering what we're supposed to get out of this particular passage in 1 Samuel 13, it's patient obedience. Obedience when it counts. Obedience when it looks like uh, maybe in this one instance God will take, give me a pass. No, it's not a pass. It's, it's clear. I'm talking about clear commands in Scripture. I'm not talking about things that aren't in Scripture, okay? Uh, There are some things that are maybe gray areas. There are some things where, like, huh, the Bible's not clear. Let's try to figure out what the wisdom is there. That's different than clear things in Scripture. So here, I want to give you six pointers real quick just to help you with living this out and getting on your way. And the first one, six pointers, the first one is get clear on what God says. If you don't know what God says, how in the world are you going to obey him? And just by way of reminder, when we disobey things that we didn't know God wanted, it's still disobedience. There's a, that, that's, just a, that's just a fact. You know, if you, uh, if you hit a tree and you didn't quite pass physics class, 
the tree doesn't suddenly become, you know, invisible. It doesn't disappear and your car is fine because you didn't take physics. And trees only destroy cars of people who hit them who took physics. That's, no, it's just how it is. If you live a promiscuous life, there are consequences in store for you if you've never even read the Bible before. There just are. So we stop making excuses. We try to get clear on what God says. And to the point that we understand them, we do the things he wants us to do. We don't do the things that he warns us about. And we patiently obey, pressing through. So get clear on what God says. Second, when pressure increases, go to him in prayer. I think that was Saul's last option that he didn't take. Not once does Saul intercede, ever. He do, doesn't even cross his mind, ever, leading up to this episode and going forward, if I remember all those episodes correctly. Saul doesn't go to the Lord. Now, do you have to be a priest to pray? No. But he just skips all that and does only what the priest, only what the priest is allowed to do. He, he skips the stuff that any believer can do, and he just... He just wants to win this battle, and that's it. He doesn't, want to just, he doesn't want to sit there and be spiritual. All he did was pace back and forth watching the clock instead of using those seven days to pray and intercede for his people. Maybe if his troops saw a praying man, there would be less people hiding in the cistern. And I think what people need to see around us, our, our kids, our spouses, is when we're under pressure, It's a little less Googling the answer, a little less trying to figure it out, hammer it out two or three in the morning, draw out the new plan for this new year. I mean, some of that is necessary. But if we're burning all our gas on just grinding it out and figuring it out and not much prayer, we're kind of acting like Saul. We want to take things into our own hands because we're afraid of Tuesday. Number three, don't reinterpret God's commands because of the pressure you're feeling to disobey. We're fine with the command, and then when the pressure mounts to disobey it, the temptation is to not disobey the command, but reinterpret the command so that now you're not disobeying. This is what the wider culture does that we're not supposed to do. The wider culture likes marriage. They just want to redefine it, just like they redefine everything. They redefine marriage. They redefine sex. They redefine gender. They redefine humanity. God doesn't tell me who I am. I tell me who I am. I identify as an animal. Well, we're tempted to do this too. Are there times where we're pretty clear on what God means by gathering together with the church, but we might redefine that priority so that we can skip it a lot? Or we're really clear on the numerous verses that command us to pray, but we redefine it as sort of like spiritual suggestions for spiritual people, not so much me. And we don't really see prayer as a matter of obedience. Do we sometimes redefine the clear command in fellowship? And so we say, well, I show up on Sunday, but yeah, but are you in fellowship, though? All the one another's of Scripture that get pretty personal. Confess sins to one another? That's not saying find everybody you can possibly meet and confess your sins, but somebody, (laughs) somebody, because this is supposed to be happening in your life. Is it? Because it's not a divine suggestion, it's a command. And sometimes we downplay those things to our own detriment. So we don't redefine things. We get clear on what scripture says and then we make those priorities in our lives. God doesn't say do this unless you come up with something better. Just do it. Don't overthink it. Do it. 
Number four, don't make excuses. We're tempted to reason our way out of it. I covered this already, so I'm not going to linger here long. But we sit there and we start going, well, maybe God only meant that for this. Maybe God only meant that for that culture. Maybe God only meant that for the Corinthian church. They were weird. No, it's been scripturated for us too. Number five, and this is really important. I'll try to do this quickly, but I need to make this as clear as I can. I, I want you to not miss the centrality of sacrifice to this whole episode. God is not going to go up before them in battle without sacrifice. That's what he was taking into his own hands, right? Sacrifice. Meaning they don't deserve God going before them. So something innocent has to take their guilt so that they can have God's blessing in battle as if they were innocent. Wasn't that the function of the sacrifice? The priest takes your guilty stuff, puts it on some innocent animal, Kills the animal. The animal took the death that you should have had on the battlefield so that now you can go out and win against the Philistines. Not because you're better than Philistines, but because something else took the death that you should have had on the battlefield. Right? It's substitutionary. And so, if you're in Christ, you benefit from not needing that sacrifice every single time you're facing something. Because Christ's sacrifice on your behalf is once for all, and you are not condemned. So you need to be clear. This, I need you to understand. God is not looking for your obedience in order to save you. The, 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 the sermon is not, go out and obey enough, guys, so that hopefully you can be saved. Hopefully I'll see you on the other side. Other religions sound like that. That's not Christianity. God saves you by putting your guilt on Jesus Christ, the innocent lamb, so that you can walk away uncondemned. And when we learn this, that God's ultimate sacrifice for Jesus Christ on our behalf saves us and forgives us, we also learn that it empowers us, like we looked at during the time of communion. Christ's sacrifice on our behalf gives us the grounds for patience, gives us the grounds for any victory in life. That is the ground. So if you're in here this morning and you're like, you're right, I need to obey a little bit better so that I could be in, you'll never be in. But if you're in here this morning, you're like, oh, I'm already in, so I guess obedience doesn't matter. That's not it either. (laughs) Obedience matters because you're saved. He saved you so that you can obey. And that's what needs to sink in. We don't want to fall off the cliff on either side where we're still trying to obey our way to God. That's never going to happen. But the other edge of the cliff is because God saved me, I guess I really don't need to worry about obedience because that's not true either. What's true is God saved me from my inability to obey. And now that I'm in Christ, I'm empowered to obey. I'm a new creation and I live for Christ now. What does that mean? It means I obey and I'm patient in the, in the obedience. Not perfectly, but progressively and in pursuit of God's heart daily. Finally, number six, I told you I'll give you six. That was the longest one, but number six, finally, don't despair of your mistakes. Each of us here can probably reflect on things that we stepped in and we hit the consequences and maybe you're still embroiled in those consequences and you feel like, man, I guess it's over. I guess I should have obeyed. Yeah, you should have obeyed, but it's not over though. (laughs) Obey going forward, right? Come to Christ if you haven't yet. If you're in Christ, Uh, renew your sense of appreciation for his grace in your life renew your sense of uh, 
um, your need for prayer so that he can give you what you need to move forward in life. I don't want any of you to leave here with your head down, you know, um, feeling like, ah, God is after obedience that I can't produce. If you're in Christ, you can produce it. So allow him to forgive you of the past and get you through these consequences. He sees the consequences. He sees the mess. Let him move you through it. What is your prerogative? Figure out and get clear on what he wants you to do and start doing those things little by little. We do it together, encouraging each other to do it. And little by little, we'll see God care and shepherd us through even the worst of consequences in our lives. Let's pray. Fathers, we close in the song of worship. We ask that you would give us a fresh sense of your mercy and your forgiveness, Lord, for the ways in which we've disobeyed. We pray for fresh mercy and grace so that we can learn what obedience looks like in life. We pray that we would model it for others in our lives. We pray that we would see it in models that you've put in our lives that exemplify what Christ is like and what living for him is like. And Lord, as we close in the song, we pray that our hearts would rise to the occasion of the lyrics and that as we worship you and praise you and thank you for what you've done, we're also mindful of what you continue to do and will do tomorrow and thereafter. Give us strength, give us fortitude to live in the moment and obey you out of love and out of faith. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. And would you join me in the closing?